Hey, y'all. I'm Erin Haynes, the host of The Amendment, a brand new weekly podcast on gender, politics, and power, brought to you by the 19th News and Wonder Media Network. You've probably heard the news that this election year, our democracy is at stake. On The Amendment, I'm breaking down what that actually means, specifically for the marginalized folks who depend on our democracy the most. This is a show that dives past the headlines and gets clear on the unfinished work of our democracy. Listen to The Amendment now, wherever you get your podcasts. Two episodes ago, we visited the suburbs of yesteryear. Specifically, the lily-white, beaver-cleaver variety that Trump made so central to his unsuccessful re-election campaign. Today, we return, this time to a contemporary version. We're going to explore a post-2016 phenomenon, the political awakening of suburban white women. Why did it happen? Why did it take so long? And most importantly, what can we learn from it? This is White Picket Fence, a podcast about the fractured and often frustrating politics of white women. I'm Julie Kohler, a writer and gender justice advocate. I've been writing about white women's politics since shortly after the 2016 election, when so many of us realized we had not done enough, not merely in that election, but in helping to build a country that reflected the values we profess to hold. To begin, let's clarify where we're talking about. What do suburbs look like these days? Well, as it turns out, the term suburb actually covers a spectrum, from neighborhoods that have grown increasingly wealthy to areas that face growing challenges amid the technical revolution. It's a range so broad it encompasses half the country's population. Lara Putnam is a historian at the University of Pittsburgh. She's also extensively chronicled the political transformations that have happened in the suburban communities of southwestern Pennsylvania, near where she lives, before and after the 2016 election. And each end of that spectrum had a different pre-2016 political status quo. So it's, it's not the same thing to be in the upscale suburbs of a coastal metropolis, which has been transformed by both internal migration and international migration, you know, over the past generation, where you've got lots of people in professional knowledge worker jobs and communities that have been at the winning end, if you will, of the increasing class gap within the U.S. In upscale suburbs like the one Lara is describing, you'll find a lot of upper-class white folks whose top issues are keeping taxes low and school districts well-funded. Many local elections in the wealthier areas Lara studied before 2016 weren't even contested by Democrats. Republicans often ran for every office, from school board to town council. Then you have suburbs on the other end of the spectrum. Subdivisions that grew up outside of Rust Belt cities in the 1970s and 80s as families who had done okay, you had managed to get a union pension after years of work in the in the mill, say, were able to have a, a small but meaningful upward mobility and you know move out of the mill towns and out towards subdivisions. Well, those will also show up in terms of density. Those will also often be categorized as suburbs, but those are regions with a very different trajectory, economically, socially, and politically. From the 1950s on, these Rust Belt mill towns were strongholds for the post-New Deal Democratic Party fueled by union power and organization. That connection began to fade in the 90s, 
people sometimes refer to them these days as sort of Obama-Trump suburbs, but really that makes it seem like there was somehow an instant shift in 2016. That's not the story. The story is one in which folks in those areas have been feeling less and less represented by the Democratic Party as the Democratic Party has gotten more diverse in its commitments over the past 20 years. Then came 2016. Huge news, uh, actually. The AP now projecting that Donald Trump has won the state of Pennsylvania. What happened in Wisconsin? This was a state Hillary Clinton was supposed to win. It was supposed to go blue according to all the polls. Pennsylvania red, Michigan red, Wisconsin red. Not since the 1980s and the 1970s had those states voted Republican for president. Donald Trump's campaign accelerated the move away from the Democratic Party. The blue wall, Wisconsin, Pennsylvania, and Michigan went red. And although Trump really prospered in rural communities and small towns, the rightward evolution of the kind of suburbs that Lara mentioned also played a role in his razor-thin victory. But in the aftermath of Trump's 2016 win came yet another shift, specifically the rise of a new kind of political activist. Some people, especially women, especially women with college degrees, especially women in their 40s, even more so 50s, even more so 60s, some women in their 70s or 80s, stepped forward and said, this is not okay. This is not the America that we thought we lived in. We had thought we were going to be electing the first woman president. Instead, we've elected someone who seems the antithesis of that. And so a lot of these women, women who had been community insiders, you know, folks who'd led, you know, Girl Scouts or swim team moms or leaders in voluntary local civic organizations maybe, but hadn't really seen electoral politics, much less local electoral politics, as central to their own mission, stepped forward and started organizing. And very rapidly, within a matter just of weeks, they had already identified not only national targets for action, whether that was about calling your congressperson or calling your senator, but they also identified local targets for action. And they began organizing really steadily, even in 2017, to recruit candidates for way down ballot offices, local town council, county coroner, school board races, and so on, and put together field programs and raised money and ran creditable campaigns and in a bunch of places actually flipped seats. And they've been going ever since. It's important to acknowledge that these women benefited from a legacy of progressive movement building that started long before 2016, and that much of that activism had been led by people of color, and especially women of color. Black Lives Matter, the Dreamers, indigenous opposition to the Dakota Pipeline. All of these organizers have been fighting for years for the people whose lives were literally on the line. But suddenly, white women woke up. Many reported feeling like they were suddenly in a foreign country. Choruses of, this is not my America, echoed across social media. The newfound activism of white women in the suburbs wasn't the most important organizing of the last four years, nor was it the most progressive. But it was these women whose political practices were the most transformed post-2016. And that evolution is important to understand. What prompted it? What enabled it? What sustained it? There's a sense of irony in the political awakening of white women in the suburbs. On one level, we've established that these women have long been fetishized as potential swing voters, soccer moms, security moms, wine moms. And yet, when their political engagement was organic, 
not some consultant-driven persuasion campaign. Our country was totally unprepared for it. Here's Rebecca Traster, a writer and columnist for New York Magazine. It was not Washington strategists coming into communities and saying, here's what you're going to do. It was actually those women enraged by the election of Donald Trump. And I don't want to use too flattering a, a brush here, right? But in fact, a moment, a rare moment in political life, perhaps, of some self-acknowledgement, at least many of the women I talked to, women who had been apathetic and uninvolved through the 2016 election because they had just assumed that Hillary Clinton was going to win and had not campaigned for her or any other candidates, were shocked when Donald Trump won. It was women in a community who said, I didn't do anything in 2016 and this terrible thing happened. Donald Trump is the president. I'm going to talk to my neighbor. We're going to organize. You just saw women throwing themselves into a political process in a way they never had before. And part of that result was you did see a swing uh, in suburban white women that, that was pretty unprecedented and pretty encouraging. This organic wave of activism was, on one level, something to celebrate. It helped fuel what the media termed the resistance. It helped prevent the repeal of the Affordable Care Act. Because these newly activated women went hyper-local, phone canvassing, door knocking, fielding candidates for local races, and getting involved in local party committees, it helped drive a blue wave in the 2018 midterms, and it helped Biden get elected. But this sudden awakening also raises questions. Like, why did it take Donald Trump becoming president for these women to wake up? Where were they before 2016? Here's Laura Putnam again. A lot of these folks are people for whom the American political system nationally and at the state level and at the local level always kind of felt like it worked, right, for them. And of course, it wasn't working for lots of other folks in different ways. In other words, many suburban white women felt like they were all good with the status quo. And why wouldn't they be? The status quo had benefited them for years. But suddenly, that sense of security was upset. And millions of women, mothers and grandmothers, teachers, librarians, nurses, many of them middle-aged or older, felt something they rarely feel permitted to express. Rage. Rebecca Traister wrote a book called Good and Mad that examines women's anger and the role it plays in their political activism. Here she is again. Who can be asleep is a big question when we talk about who, who gets awakened to anger. And a white middle class and white middle class women have been in a position post-feminism to be able to not be awake to all the things that they had every reason to be angry about. It's not an accident that Hillary Clinton is herself uh, demographically, you know, an upper middle class white woman. Christine Blasey Ford is a white woman. You know, the sort of the things that have made white women angry are the moments where they realize that they're not protected from or inoculated against inequity and injustice. The 2016 election alerted scores of white women to something else, too. The fact that women of color, and especially black women, had been shouldering the fight for a fairer, more just nation for decades. In the months that followed Trump's victory, women's activism began to shift towards electoral goals. When Democrat Doug Jones won an unlikely victory in Alabama's special Senate election in 2017, 
the political gap between white and black women was on full display. If there's any middle ground left in this race, anyone who's still on the fence, it is quickly disappearing in the wake of the allegations of sexual misconduct against Roy Moore, particularly, it seems, among women. 98% of black women voted for Jones, and 63% of white women supported Roy Moore, his Republican opponent, who also happened to be facing multiple allegations of sexual assault against teenage girls as young as 14. That night, as thank you black women tweets poured through my newsfeed, I was struck by how hollow, how insufficient it felt. Was that the best white women could do? Express our gratitude to black women who were doing the hard work of saving democracy? So I started writing about white women, examining the influences on our political decisions, rethinking the narratives I told myself, and encouraging other white women to do the same. It's undeniably frustrating that for a lot of us, it took seeing injustice against some of our own to wake us up to the rampant injustice affecting others. And that for many, it is only now becoming clear that they've been backing the wrong horse, if they're having that realization at all. But anger isn't easy for women to show. It's not socially acceptable. We hear and internalize the message that we shouldn't get angry. There are incentives for white women to not be angry, and those incentives are communicated in a million different ways. They're the basic messages, and, and they're not just communicated at white women, although the messages about anger are framed differently depending on your race. We are, we are told in every way every day that anger is unattractive, unbecoming, that if you're angry, you won't be taken seriously, that you will be infantilized. But white women have been able, you know, to, this is our way of life in, in defense of white supremacy. These are our privileges that are being challenged. These are our position in society that's being challenged. This is, this is our morality that's being challenged. And you can pull off that kind of righteously defensive anger if you're doing it on behalf of the powerful and abusive system. It's a very different dynamic when you talk about women's anger that is coming from outside that system and directed at that system. When it is a confrontational anger, that kind of anger is treated as dangerous, uh, ugly, malignant, poisonous, laughable, childish, irrational, and, and it's treated that way by the system that's being attacked by it. For some women, even women who are already angry, there's another barrier that has to be overcome in this so-called Great Awakening, isolation. Here's Jackie Payne, Executive Director of Galvanize USA, an organization that is working to build women's political agency, especially in rural communities and small towns. We heard from so many women that they feel like they are the only one in their communities who feel the way they do. And so they have this sense of isolation um, or that there's, you know, maybe in their family or community, they haven't had a, a lot of support for their point of view. So they felt silenced and that the only way to really make it through is to kind of uh, be quiet and not talk about it. Organizers like Jackie have focused their energy on reaching this subset of women. And a big part of their work has simply been saying, you're not the only one. What they've loved is having a space where they can see their views validated, where they can practice talking about what they think and, you know, kind of evolving their points of view or defending it. What we hear a lot is how validating it is to be able to, to talk freely and to be supported. Having space to develop your own point of view, 
The value of an opportunity like that cannot be overstated. As these groups formed across the country, white suburban women made connections, got mad, and saw truly that there was power in their numbers. Here's Laura. So people have been getting invested in personally, emotionally, in terms of their time, in terms of their money, an enormous range of down-ballot candidacies and offices that are not part of the media story of national politics. But all of those offices are absolutely critical in shaping national politics. So non-national office holding has a huge impact on national politics, but we ha- we've missed those stories. And this has been a realm of enormous change over the past few years. When I started research for this podcast, one of the first groups of people I knew I wanted to talk with were actual on-the-ground organizers and the women in communities who had themselves become politically active. Suburban women who had watched those election results roll in, who felt anxious, sickened, mad as hell, who took the step to translate those feelings into real change. I wanted to talk to them not because their work was the most important, but because if white women want to start showing up for Black, Indigenous, and other women of color, then the task at hand is organizing our own. And so learning from those who are doing it, to see how we could do more of it, seemed essential. So, I spoke with them. Women like Julie Womack from Ohio. She was actually out of town the night of the 2016 election. Her oldest kids called her, crying. And Julie felt sort of lost. She remembers telling her kids that it would all be okay, but was having trouble believing that herself. And so I immediately was like, you know what, we we need to do something like locally. We need to find people who feel like me. Because I knew I had this circle of friends who did feel like me, like some of my really close friends. We all felt the same way. And so I was like, there's got to be more of us. And as it turns out, there were. Julie joined a small private Facebook group of around 50 local women. The last time Julie and I spoke, membership had grown to well over 500. I think I was at first surprised by the numbers who were joining, because I think we all felt that we were very much alone here, that there were not that many of us. Because the local politics is all very conservative. The elected officials are very hardcore Republican. You know, so you kind of felt like that was what your community was reflected by who was elected in leadership and stuff. And then as the group got bigger and I started talking to more people and then slowly talking to neighbors and talking to other people I met, I was like, oh, okay, we're not alone. This was like a misnomer that we were like some small part of our community. Encouraged by her newfound community, Julie started a state-level political action group. It's made up almost entirely of local suburban moms. Lisa Rowden is from Alamance County in central North Carolina, a deep red area. She's always been politically aware. Then 2016 happened. I think primarily just the complete and utter horror of 50% of the population of this country voting for Donald Trump. That was the enzyme, That's that was the catalyst, that's all I needed to really get started. Lisa eagerly picked up the activist mantle. It became what I do <laughs> in 2016. Lisa says that initially, she was going to all kinds of meetings for all kinds of organizations, anxious to feel like she was making a difference. She found her niche with Down Home North Carolina, 
a community organizing group that is working to build power for working families in rural and small town North Carolina. And while it was Trump that spurred her activism, it was learning more about the injustices in her community that kept her engaged and working on behalf of local issues like bail reform. The elements of her identity that could have paralyzed other would-be activists, white, middle-aged, a woman, she uses as sort of a bridge. The things that Down Home does and the things that I'm passionate about are the things that hurt everybody, but who, who they hurt the worst are poor and rural folks. And that's a whole community of people, you know, that's black, brown, white. A lot of these folks, for all good reason, feel as though they don't have a voice. Most of these people will tell you nobody has ever knocked on their door to ask them how they're feeling about things that are going on in the community or their, their political leanings or anything like that. And, you know, they have every right to feel that way because it is very true. Everything is set up against the poor. And, you know, that's, that's where I can hopefully have an impact is helping those folks, you know, and it's not about being their voice. It's about bringing them into the fold and showing them that you don't think you have a voice. We're here to help you. This is what we're doing. If you want to be involved in this, come join us. And, you know, folks are just thrilled to be able to be a part of that. There is so much power in first taking a moment to listen, in learning, like Lisa, that the best way to build a movement is to make sure people don't just feel heard, they're actually heard. Lisa and Julie are not unique in their galvanization. After the shock of the 2016 election, many women got involved on a local level. A criticism of this recent wave of activism is that it's too little, too late. That's true, and something many of the newly activated women themselves would concede. Yet it still matters. The 2020 election was one in which two highly energized bases turned out in force, engaging what political operatives call low propensity voters in communities of color. Work that in states like Georgia and Arizona has been built over the last decade was essential to victory this November. But so was the shift among white suburban voters. And it was spurred, in part, by the activism of these women. So how can we sustain this energy and activism and even replicate it in other communities? How can white women step up and join with those who have long been fighting for progress? Jackie and her organization are working to crack that nut. Galvanize USA provides space, in person in a pre-COVID era, and now digitally, for women to build their confidence and help them become more politically active. I think our focus to date has been mostly on shoring up individual confidence in their own political knowledge um, and their political agency, the ability to feel confident that, they're, that they know what's right and that what they value is important, that they can vote their own way, um, even if it's different from people around them. 
You know, it feels like a risk to start those conversations. So part of our work is to reduce the risk of that by providing support and equipping women to feel more confident in talking about what they believe. Encouraging these women to personally engage more with local politics is a worthy goal unto itself. But there's more to it than that. It's politically aware and politically confident people that form organic, active groups in the first place. Shoring up the confidence of these women will help them break down those barriers. It'll show them that they aren't isolated, teach them it's okay to get angry, and fight for a country that reflects their values. And what matters to me is the kinds of conversations these gals are having now and how they're in discussion with each other about how to make America more like they want it to be. And, and these are women who, right, who believe America should work for everyone. There's tangible evidence that these kinds of conversations do actually have an effect. Data shows that where Galvanize and other organizations ran programs, there were real swings in white women's votes. And these swings weren't limited to the college-educated suburban white women who receive much of the political attention. In Michigan, there was a six-point Democratic swing among non-college-educated white women. In Wisconsin, an 11-point swing. In other words, organizing matters. There are no unreachable audiences. Now, it's possible to feel a bit conflicted about this work. To, on one hand, recognize the value of meeting people where they are and empathizing with what they experience as barriers to political action. On the other hand, it can be hard to empathize after the terror so many communities of color and immigrants were subjected to, especially during the Trump years. When immigrant children are being separated from their parents, white supremacists are marching in Charlottesville, and the president himself was ordering the Proud Boys to stand back and stand by. It's hard to empathize when, despite this organic wave of organizing, the majority of white women still voted for Trump. Lots of people, especially people of color that have been organizing for decades, are rightfully exhausted by attempts to educate a group that's so late to the party. How much empathy should we have for white women who have the privilege to avoid politics because they don't want to cause conflict in their marriages, families, or communities? I don't have the answer. I do know that investing in white women as voters and organizers shouldn't come, as it often has, at the expense of organizing voters of color. At the same time, isn't it our responsibility to make our communities better? To open discussions that could bring family members and friends further on the road to progress? To build the kind of multiracial coalition that reflects our multiracial country? It'll be a while before we have the full story of what transpired with white women this November. It'll take more data to know how significantly suburban white women did swing and how much of their swing was offset, as it appears that it was, by an influx of new, infrequent, white rural voters who went heavily for Trump. Regardless, it's going to take much more than one election cycle for this kind of community organizing and outreach to bear fruit. This is long-term work. Next week, we'll go more deeply into communities that have been leaning into that long-term vision for years, running political programs that don't just target white women, but that actively work to build multiracial political coalitions, to get white women to own their stake 
in fighting for the dignity of others as we would our own. If 2016 helped spark a great awakening for some white women, how do we turn that into a great reckoning? One that puts race front and center. And to find out, we'll return to my childhood home state of Minnesota. White Picket Fence is a Wonder Media Network production. Our producers are Maddie Foley and Edie Allard. Executive producer is Jenny Kaplan. You can follow us on Twitter at WMN Media and on Instagram at WMN.media. You can follow me on Twitter at Julie K. Kohler One. See you next week. There's a new podcast that I'm excited to share with you called Pod is a Woman. Hosted by Johanna Masca, Darian Page, and Alejandra Campoverde, three Obama White House veterans who also happen to be friends. Pod is a Woman is an honest, unfiltered conversation about politics and pop culture. Each week, the Pod is a Woman ladies offer their firsthand political insight and a woman's perspective, and are also joined by a roster of dynamic guests, politicians, organizers, tastemakers, journalists, and more. Some of their past interviews include Dr. Jill Biden, Congresswoman Karen Bass, and Natalie Portman. Check them out. New episodes drop on Thursdays. Listen on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Radio.com, or wherever you get your podcasts.